A reading from Luke 1, 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, and to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. This is the word of, word of the Lord. Thanks, Molly. I don't know if it's a good sign or a bad sign when it just starts pouring rain right in the middle of a scripture passage or not. But um, anyway, here we are. Um, good morning again. My name is Matt again. And um, what we've been doing for this season of Advent is we've been looking at these songs that people are singing in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we looked at this song that Mary sings. It's called the Magnificat. It's kind of the, the Latinized way of when she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at um, the Benedictus, which is the song that this guy named Zechariah sings. And it's just fascinating, these opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, everybody's singing, just songs all over the place, which, which seems appropriate because it's Christmas time. And isn't that what you're supposed to do is just sing all the time? I mean, as, as Buddy the Elf has told us that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. <laughs> so yeah, this, is, this, is, this feels appropriate. This is because, as the 1963 song put it, uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the most, it's the most wonderful time of the year uh, with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. Aren't we all supposed to be happy during this time of the year? I think um, one of the reasons why so many of us struggle during this season of Advent or kind of this Christmas season is because of the pressure that we feel to be happy, the pressure that we feel for it to be the most wonderful time of the year. You know, Starbucks every year, they put a little slogan on their kind of Christmas, during the Christmas season on their Christmas cups. And last year, at the end of 2020, the slogan on the back of their cups was, uh, carry the Mary. You think about the year 2020, and you think about, oh my, okay, that's when COVID hit. You've, that's when all of kind of deeper new levels of racial trauma was brought to the surface and social unrest and political unrest. And it's like, at the end of that year, carry the Mary. It just feels pretty tone deaf. And, um, you know, studies have shown year after year that it's, you know, during this season is when the numbers really rise for depression and for suicide. And I think it's, it's 
so much due to the fact of the expectations that we put on ourselves during the season. It's nostalgic, it's sentimental, you know, we string up the lights and we go to a million Christmas parties and we're supposed to be laughing and having fun and that pressure to be happy can actually exacerbate our sadness where it makes us feel like, well, okay, I'm not happy and I'm sad about that, but now I'm sad about the fact that I'm supposed to be happy and I'm not. Here's why I'm telling you all this is because in our passage uh, that Molly just read for us this morning is we have a story, we have a song sung by this guy named Zechariah where he spontaneously bursts out into singing. And it's not because of gingerbread cookies and claymation movies about reindeer. The reason why he is singing is because he has something to sing about. God has entered into the wreckage of his life. And so if we want to experience real joy, not just artificial joy, real deep gladness, then I think Zechariah has something to teach us this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to show you two big ideas from this song that he sings, that real joy is born out of reflecting and replacing. Those are the two big, two big ideas I want to explore, that real joy if we're going to get it, it's, it's only born out of reflecting and replacing. Let's look at reflecting first. What do I mean by that? Well, look at how the song begins. He says in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is just kind of, this is just worship. This is his heartfelt adoration of God for the fact that God is God. He's praising God. Now, you can read that and you think, okay, yeah, that's like kind of in the Bible, it seems like generic, run-of-the-mill religious stuff, people worshiping God that feels kind of, you know, MBD, whatever. But unless you miss the bigger story, just the fact that Zechariah is singing it all, much less what he is singing about, unless you understand why this is even here, you'll miss that something massive has taken place in this guy's life. And I didn't include the whole story in your bulletin because it would have been way too long, but, but if you'll indulge me for just a minute, I just want to tell you the story of Zechariah that leads up to this song because it's really important. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, you find out that Zechariah is an old man, and he's a priest, which means he just kind of faithfully serves God. He does his thing. He's married to this woman named Elizabeth. And uh, they live in the country. They're just kind of normal, simple country folk. But what you discover early on is that they have a core sadness in their story, uh, a deep wound that they have been carrying around for decades. And that is that uh, they don't have children and they can't have children. Elizabeth is barren, the, the passage, the, the, the gospel tells us which, um, as some of you might know firsthand, that's incredibly painful. It's incredibly painful to, to wrestle with infertility or to have a desire to want to have kids, and for whatever reason, the way that your, your story has been written, that just hasn't been the way that it's gone, and it's a, it's a deep loss. It's a deep grief to mourn over this desire that you have that, that you can't have for whatever reason. And so, no doubt, Zechariah and Elizabeth have felt that personal pain, but for them, it wasn't it wasn't just personal, though it was. It was also financial. In this cultural context, children were your retirement plan. They didn't have Social Security. They didn't have, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. It was your children were who took care of you once you got older. And 
this would have impacted them socially because also the religious environment at the time believed that if you were infertile, if you were barren, if you didn't have children, this was a sign that God was judging you for some sin that you've committed, some moral flaw in your life. So no doubt they would have, you know, experienced walking down the street and, you know, you could imagine a scenario where people, you know, were just whispering, oh, there goes Zechariah and Elizabeth. I wonder what they did. I wonder what that big sin in their life was that why God is judging them for this. And so for them, this was a massive, painful, shameful part of their story. But they're old now, and that desire has kind of died. They've given up hope of having children. They're old. And um, Zechariah goes out of town on a business trip. Part of his duties as a priest was to go to Jerusalem, the, the big city, go to the big show and perform his duties as a priest there. And when he gets down there, he gets selected to be the guy to go into the temple to offer incense and pray on behalf of the nation of Israel, which is what would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for this guy. And he goes into the temple to do his thing, and it says that an angel appears out of nowhere. He freaks out, and the angel says to him, hey, Zechariah, uh, God has heard your prayers, and you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him John, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, Zechariah cannot wrap his mind around this. And so in this moment, he's like, my wife and I are about to move into a maternity ward. I mean, not a maternity ward, a nursing home. And they they don't have maternity wards in nursing homes. And um, (laughs) that would have been funny if he had said that. But um, his point is, this doesn't make any sense. We're old. I can't, this doesn't make any sense. And what he does in that moment is he shows you he doesn't really believe that even though he believes this stuff kind of theoretically, you know, cognitively at, at one level, but when the rubber hits the road, when an angel shows up and says, this is going to happen, he, he doesn't believe that it's going to happen. And there's probably lots of reasons for this. I mean, this is a dude with a lot of pain in his life. Maybe he believes God is not good. God, God's not going to give, you know, this is just kind of wish, you know, this is just, you know, whatever, wishful thinking. This is just nice pie-in-the-sky stuff, but this isn't real. He's had enough disappointment in his life where maybe he realizes, God, I, don't, I don't think God's powerful enough to do this. For whatever reason, this is the moment where he is exposed. And when the rubber hits the road, he proves he doesn't really believe the God that he preaches about. And so God does something. And this sounds kind of harsh at first, but God, in an instant, has it so that Zechariah goes deaf and, and mute Everything goes silent, and he can't speak. And so you think about that as somebody who's a priest. That means now he can't do his job because to be a priest means you've got to preach, you've got to teach, you can't pray with people, you can't offer sacrifices for people. So he's functionally out of a job at this point. And he goes home traumatized. He, he writes on tablets to tell his wife what in the world just happened to him. And for nine months... He has to sit there silently, can't speak, and all he is left to do is just wrestle with and ponder over the reality of what in the world just happened to him. For nine months, he watches his wife's stomach slowly start to get bigger. And here's here's another thing that's crazy. I didn't put it in your bulletin, but the story right before this, Mary who is pregnant with Jesus, during her first trimester, comes and lives with Zechariah and Elizabeth during Elizabeth's last trimester. So for three months, 
Zechariah is looking at and living with two of the most unlikely pregnant women on the planet. Here's a pregnant virgin, and here's a pregnant old woman who's been told for decades that she can't have children. And he just has to sit there and take it in. Do business with God. Wrestle with what in the world do I believe? What in the world is even happening? So you fast forward. Their son, John, eventually comes. And uh, on the day when they were going to circumcise John and give John his name, that's the moment where suddenly everything opens up and Zechariah can start speaking. And, and what does he do? He bursts out into song. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, I can speak. Y'all listen, it's back. And instead of saying, Elizabeth, oh my goodness, we have a child. This is crazy. Instead of doing that, he sings. And what does he sing? Verse 68, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. God has visited us. This is such a big deal to him that he says it again in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, what in the world happened to Zechariah? How did a nominally religious guy have a tectonic shift in his heart where he is adoring and praising God for visiting him? And I think here's why. Because he had been given space to reflect and ponder over spiritual realities. He, he was given space in the midst of his life being totally upended and totally disrupted to do business with God. Here's the thing. Busyness is a good thing for the most part, but I think what's so dangerous about busyness is that it distracts us from thinking about ultimate reality. If you're anything like me, you just kind of just go through life reacting to what's in front of you. Or it's like, okay, I've just, I got to put out fires. I, I've got to, um, I got to keep the trains moving with my family's schedule. We, we've, we, you know, I've got to respond to all these emails. I've got a meal plan. We got to do chores. We got to do this. We got to do that. And then when you ever have a free moment to breathe or to think, you pull out your little computer in your pocket and just kind of endlessly scroll. Every moment of our life is stuffed with distraction and activity, and we don't think, we don't ponder the questions that we might need to be wrestling with. But here's this massive disruption that happened in Zechariah's life, and he's having to wrestle with these questions. And so for you and I, when disruptions come, my invitation for you is to not waste them to not waste your disruptions, that maybe God is doing something in your life in the same way that he's like doing with Zechariah. It, there's this cataclysmic disruption that's forcing you to stop, forcing you to shut down life and actually ask questions like, what is God doing? What am I doing? What, what am I doing with my life if I claim to live in God's universe? And if I believe, like Zechariah came to believe, that God has actually visited us, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for the way that I'm doing my life now? 
The invitation for you this morning is to wrestle with the deeper questions, to, to, to reflect over the reality, what if God has actually visited us? Real joy, deep-hearted, rooted joy is only going to come when you've done work, when you've wrestled with that, when you've tried to make sense of who you are in light of God's world. It's not going to come just through hanging up wreaths and asking for PlayStations. It's going to come when you come to terms with what if God has actually visited us. Real joy is born out of reflecting. But here's the second thing. Real joy is also born out of replacing. Replacing. And here's what I mean by that. This story has been so fascinating for me to take a closer look at in detail. I I don't think I even knew this story was in the Bible until I really started, like, studying that this week. But here is Zechariah. And he's lived his whole life, and he has been praying and praying and longing and aching for a child. And then God eventually gives him a child, and he sings. But here's what's crazy. Do you notice what he's singing about? His song is not about his child. His song is about Mary's child, which means that there has been this replacement that has happened in his heart. Something has changed to where something has been rewired and reordered where now Mary's son, Jesus, is the theme of his song. In fact, let me me show you. Look at verse 68. He blesses God. He's visited us. He's redeemed his people. And verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's not talking about his son, John. He's talking about Jesus. When when the Bible uses this um, imagery of a horn... It's a symbol for strength. It's a, it's a symbol for power. You know, when an animal, an aggressive animal attacks or tries to defend itself, it uses its horn. And, and so this is, this is the Bible's way of, of, of referring to power and strength. And Zechariah is praising God for raising up the power of salvation from the household of David, which was this long-awaited expectation in the Old Testament that one day, someday, a great, 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 great grandson of David is going to come as the new king in power and make everything right. And Zechariah is connecting the dots and saying, he's here. It's finally here. And he has come, verse 71, to save us from our enemies. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Verse 74, so that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I mean, you see what's happened? Something has been replaced in his heart. What he thought was his most deepest longing and desire got replaced with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't love his child. I mean, he sings over his son, John, in verse 76. But even then, his love for his son is is in light of this enormous reality of Mary's son. Look at verse 76. And you, child, talking about John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You see how his his song for his son is even in, in reference to Jesus. John, you are here, and I'm so thankful you are here. Your role is to set the table for the Lord, for him. Verse 77, 
John, you are here to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Here's what this means. The longings of Zechariah's heart found their resolution ultimately in Jesus. Something changed where what he thought was going to fill him, complete him, fix him, it got replaced by something bigger. I don't know if you've learned this lesson yet, but so many of us are, are, are just like Zechariah, where we fix our hearts onto something. And we think if this thing, if I can just get this, then I will be filled, I will be saved, I will be fixed. And, and it, so often we sometimes get that very thing and then we realize how disappointed it actually was. It didn't do it. Thought if I could just get here, you get there, didn't do it. Thought, oh, if I can just get married, ah, that'll do it, didn't do it. Uh, a couple of years ago, a handful of years ago, Matt Damon was on the Graham Norton show. It's on this, you can find this YouTube clip of this. Graham Norton, the host, asks Matt Damon, okay, you were 27 years old when you won an Oscar for the movie Goodwill Hunting. What in the world was that like? Did you just stay up partying your brains out all night long? Was that just awesome? And Matt Damon gives this really famous um, and fascinating little response. He says, well, I stayed up all night by myself, couldn't sleep. And I just sat there looking at this trophy, this little statue. And here's what he says, quote, I suddenly had this thing wash over me where I thought, imagine chasing that and not getting it and then getting it finally in your 80s or 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste. It can't fill you up, end quote. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty profound realization as a 27-year-old to look and say, okay, what if I had chased that my entire career and I got to the very end of my life and I finally got it and I realized, oh, my goodness, it was a waste. It didn't fill me like I thought it would. Have you learned that lesson yet where you think, okay, maybe if I just get that, then I'll be satisfied. If I just join that church, then I'll be spiritually fulfilled. If I just marry that person, then I'll be satisfied. If I can just join that club or buy that car or get that job or hook up with that person or get that many followers, on and on and on and on we go. Don't you realize that our hearts are a bottomless pit of desire? And those things, while, you know, they may be good things, they're just not big enough. They're not big enough to fill the hole. This is why, as a, as a Christian minister, I would say the only thing that can fill it is Jesus. That's what Zechariah had. That's what happened in his life. He thought, if I just have a child, everything will be full. And he gets it, but that's not what really energizes him. What gets it for Zechariah is King Jesus' is coming. And even though Zechariah could never really know the ins and outs of, of what Jesus was really here to do, something changed in him. Something in his heart was reordered where he, this replacement happened. Now, here's the question. How in the world does that happen? How do you replace your greatest desire with Jesus? You know how that happens? Through an experience of mercy. 
It's the only way that that happens. You see this in verse uh, 72. He has come to show mercy. And even though Zechariah could never really know in the particulars of that, in some sense he knew Jesus is here to show mercy and that, that rearranged his heart. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, you, you probably all might have heard of, I assume you've at least heard of the show Ted Lasso. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you're into it, maybe you, you're at least aware of it. Uh, the basic premise of the show is that there's this woman named Rebecca, and she owns a football team, what you and I would call a soccer team. And she makes this really bizarre hire. Uh, she's in Europe, and she hires this American college football coach, a guy named Ted Lasso, and played by Jason Sudeikis. And what's crazy, he doesn't know anything about soccer. He's not, a, he's not a soccer coach. He's an American football coach. But the reason why she does this, he, Ted Lasso doesn't know this, but, but he is a pawn in her quest for revenge. She has acquired this team as a fallout of her divorce from her ex-husband. And so she wants to hire some idiot who doesn't know anything about the sport to come and just explode the whole program just kind of create a, uh, you know, just a train wreck for this program to exact her revenge on her ex. And along the way, she begins to realize, wait, Ted is a real person, and he, he has feelings, and he's actually good at his job. And so she realizes, oh, my goodness, I've got to come clean. I, I, I've got to let him know what I've done. And so she walks into his office, and she's, you know, grief-stricken, and just she's filled with remorse. And she explains the story. And she's expecting him to explode in anger, to quit on the spot, to sue her, maybe all the above. And instead, he just smiles and goes, yeah, I forgive you. And she's taken aback by this. She can't make sense of this. And she's like, wait, wait, what? And kind of in his typical Ted Lasso, lighthearted, generous spirit sort of way, he just shrugs and says, yeah, I forgive you. And you see this transformation happen in her. She, she starts laughing. She throws her arms around him and hugs him and just drinks in the mercy that she was just extended. Now, she went from despair, guilty, grief-stricken to laughter. You know, what took, you know how that happened? Mercy. She received mercy. Zechariah knew King Jesus is here to extend mercy. He is here to forgive his people their sins. That's what verse 77 is. Mercy means I am, I am going to not, I'm not going to force you to pay for what you owe me. I'm going to release you of your debts. I'll pay for the debt in your place. And even though, like I said, Zechariah can never knew in that moment how God was going to pay that debt, you and I do. Because we knew that as this child grew up, one day he was going to grow up and he was going to be hung up on a cross. And on that cross is where he pays that debt. On that cross is where he extends ultimate mercy, where he says, everything that you owe, all of your punishment, put it on me so that you and I can receive what verse 78 says, the tender mercy of God. I love that little adjective, tender mercy. When you receive tender mercy from Jesus, that's, that has the power to replace and to reorder your heart. 
when you receive mercy. Now, here's the final thought. Final thought, and I'm done. If you think about Zechariah's life as a whole, it's pretty sad. I mean, he lived his entire life longing, aching for something that he really didn't get until he was about to die. And he you know, tr- has this traumatic encounter where he's silenced, he's, he's, his whole life is disrupted, he's thrown out of whack. But when you step back and you see the whole story, you begin to realize, okay, God wrote his story in such a way to prepare Zechariah to receiving the tender mercy of God. He thought he knew it intellectually, theologically, but it wasn't until he was broken. It wasn't until he was disrupted, where his whole life got thrown out of whack, was he able to receive the tender mercy of God. And then he sings. I don't know what your story is. You don't know all the ins and outs of my story. And I don't presume to know why God allows the hard things to happen in your life and mine. He disrupts things. He throws things out of whack. Terrible things happen. And there's a million mysterious reasons for that. Perhaps one of the reasons might be that he's writing your story in a similar way that he's written Zechariah's, where disruption has come to till up the soil of your heart so that you might be ready, open to receiving the tender mercy of God. I want to invite you to reflect, to think about these spiritual realities during the season of Advent. What is God doing? What has he been doing? What what is being disrupted and churned up in my life? And could it be that it's so that my, my heart and my hands might be open to receiving mercy? If that's you, I want to invite you to receive it, to drink in, to be like Rebecca and collapse into the arms of Jesus, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he has endless tender mercy for you. And even the disruption in some way is a severe form of that very mercy. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, as we sing in the song, let every heart prepare him room. Father, I pray that you would have our hearts be prepared with room for Jesus in this season. We're busy. There's a million things to do. We have full lives with lots of plates that we're spinning. Father, would you be merciful to give us space to reflect, to ponder, to wrestle with, do business with you, churn up the soil of our hearts so that we might be open to receiving your mercy. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but open us up into receiving mercy because we need it. And we can't do this without you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.